It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Section 7 of William Blake by G.K. Chesterton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On consideration, I incline to think that the best way to summarize the art of Blake from its most superficial to its most subtle phase would be simply to take one quick characteristic picture and discuss it fully. First its title and subject, then its look and shape, then its main principles and implications. Let us take as a good working example the weird picture which is reproduced on one of the pages of Gilchrist's Life of Blake. Now the obvious, prompt, and popular view of Blake is very well represented by the mere title of the picture. The first thing any ordinary person will notice about it is that it is called The Ghost of a Flea, and the ordinary person will be very justifiably amused. This is the first fact about William Blake and that is a fact by no means to be despised. Simply considered as a puzzle or a parlor game, Blake is extraordinarily entertaining. I have known many cultivated families made happy on winter evenings by trying to understand the poem called The Mental Traveler, or wondering what can be the significance of the stanza that runs, Little Mary Bell had a fairy in a nut, Long John Brown had the devil in his gut. Long John Brown loved little Mary Bell, and the fairy drew the devil into the nutshell. The first fact is that we are puzzled and honestly amused. It is as if we had a highly eccentric neighbor in the next garden. Long before we like him, we like gossiping about him. And the mere title, The Ghost of a Flea, represents all that makes Blake a center of literary gossip. And now, having enjoyed the oddity of the title, let us look at the picture. Let us attempt to describe, so far as it can be done in words instead of lines, what Blake thought the ghost of a flea would be like. The scene suggests a high and cheerless corridor, as in some silent castle of giants. Through this a figure, naked and gigantic, is walking with a high-shouldered and somewhat stealthy stride. In one hand the creature has a peculiar curved knife of a cruel shape. In the other he has a sort of stone basin. The most striking line in the composition is the hard, long curve of the spine, which goes up without a single flicker to the back of the brutal head, as if the whole back view were built like a tower of stone. The face is in no sense human. It has something that is aquiline, and also something that is swinish. Its eyes are alive with a moony glitter 
that is entirely akin to madness. The thing seems to be passing a curtain and entering a room. With this, we may mark the second fact about Blake, that if his only object is to make our flesh creep, he does it well. His bogies are good, reliable bogies. There is really something that appeals to the imagination about this notion of the ghost of a flea being a tall vampire stalking through the tall corridors at night. We have found Blake an amusing madman, and now an interesting madman. Let us go on with the process. The third thing to note about this picture is that for Blake, the ghost of a flea means the idea or principle of a flea. The principle of a flea, as far as we can see it, is bloodthirstiness, the feeding on the life of another, the fury of the parasite. Fleas may have other nobler sentiments and meditations, but we know nothing about them. The vision of a flea is a vision of blood, and that is what Blake has made of it. This is the next point, then, to be remarked in his make-up as a mystic. He is interested in the ideas for which such things stand. For him the tiger means an awful elegance. For him the tree means a silent strength. If it be granted that Blake was interested, not in the flea, but in the idea of the flea, we can proceed to the next step, which is a particularly important one. Every great mystic goes about with a magnifying glass. He sees every flea as a giant, perhaps rather as an ogre. I have spoken of the tall castle in which these giants dwell, but indeed that tall tower is the microscope. It will not be denied that Blake shows the best part of a mystic's attitude in seeing that the soul of a flea is ten thousand times larger than a flea. But the really interesting point is much more striking. It is the essential point upon which all primary understanding of the art of Blake really turns. The point is this, that the ghost of a flea is not only larger than a flea, the ghost of a flea is actually more solid than a flea. The flea himself is hazy and fantastic compared to the hard and massive actuality of his ghost. When we have understood this, we have understood the second of the great ideas in Blake, the idea of ideas. To sum up Blake's philosophy, in any phrase sufficiently simple and popular for our purpose, is not at all easy, for Blake's philosophy was not simple. Those who imagine that because he was always talking about lambs and daisies, about Jesus and little children, that therefore he held a simple gospel of goodwill, entirely misunderstand the whole nature of his mind. No man had harder dogmas. No one insisted more that religion must have theology. The everlasting gospel was far from being a simple gospel. Blake had succeeded in inventing, in the course of about ten years, as tangled and interdependent a system of theology as the Catholic Church has accumulated in two thousand. Much of it, indeed, he inherited from ancient heretics, who were much more doctrinal than the orthodoxy which they opposed. Notable among these were the Gnostics, 
and in some degree the mad Franciscans who followed Joachim de Flore. Very few modern people would know an Akamoth or an Eon if they saw him. Yet one would really have to be on rather intimate terms with these old mystical gods and demons before one could move quite easily in the cosmos which was familiar to Blake. Let us, however, attempt to find a short and popular statement of the position of Blake and all such mystics. The plainest way of putting it, I think, is this. This school especially denied the authority of nature. Some went the extreme length of the mad Manichaeans and declared the material universe evil in itself. Some, like Blake, and most of the poets, considered it as a shadow or illusion, a sort of joke of the Almighty. But whatever else nature was, nature was not our mother. Blake applies to her the strange words used by Christ to Mary, and says to Mother Earth in many poems, What have I to do with thee? It is common to connect Blake and Wordsworth, because of their ballads about babies and sheep. They were utterly opposite. If Wordsworth was the poet of nature, Blake was specially the poet of anti-nature. Against nature he said a certain entity, which he called imagination, but the word as commonly used conveys very little of what he meant by it. He did not mean something shadowy or fantastic, but rather something clear-cut, definite, and unalterable. By imagination, that is, he meant images, the eternal images of things. You might shoot all the lions on earth, but you could not destroy the Lion of Judah, the Lion of the Imagination. You might kill all the lambs of the world, and eat them, but you could not kill the Lamb of the Imagination, which was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Blake's philosophy, in brief, was primarily the assertion that the ideal is more actual than the real. Just as in Euclid, the good triangle in the mind is a more actual, and more practical, than the bad triangle on the blackboard. Many of Blake's pictures become intelligible, or as intelligible as they can become, if we keep this principle in mind. For instance, there is a fine design representing a naked and heroic youth of great beauty tracing something on the sand. The reader, when he looks at the title of it, is interested to discover that this is a portrait of Sir Isaac Newton. This is not so much of an affectation as it seems. Blake, from his own point of view, really did think that the eternal Isaac Newton, as God beheld him, was more of an actuality than the terrestrial gentleman who happened to be elderly or happened by some sublunary accident to wear clothes. Therefore, when he calls it a portrait, he is not, from his own point of view, talking nonsense. It is the form and feature of someone who exists, and who is different from everyone else, just as if it were the ordinary oil painting of an alderman. The most important conception can be found in one sentence, which he let fall as if by accident, nature has no outline, but imagination has. 
if a clear black line when looked at through a microscope was seen to be a ragged and confused edge like a mop or a doormat then blake would say so much worse for the microscope if pure lines existed only in the human mind then blake would say so much the better for the human mind if the real earth grew damp and dubious when it met and mixed itself with the sea so much worse for the real earth if the idea of clean-cut truth existed only in the intellect that was the most actual place in which anything could exist in short blake really insisted that man as the image of god had a right to impose form upon nature he would have laughed to scorn the notion of the modern evolutionist that nature is to be permitted to impose formlessness upon man for him the lines in a landscape were boundaries which he drew like frontiers by his authority as the plenipotentiary ambassador of heaven when he drew his line round leviathan he was drawing the divine net around him he tamed his bulls and lions even by creating them and when he made in some picture a line between the sea and land that does not exist in nature he was saying by supernatural right thus far shalt thou come and no farther and here shall thy proud waves be stayed i select the symbol of the sea partly because blake was himself fond of such elemental images and partly because it is an image especially appropriate to blake's great conception of the outline in the eternal imagination nearly all phrases about the sea are specially and spiritually false people talk of the sea as vast and vague drifting and indefinite as if the magic of it lay in having no lines or boundaries but the spell of the sea upon the eye and the soul is exactly this that it is the one straight line in nature they talk of the infinite sea artistically it would be far truer to talk of an infinite haystack for the haystack does slightly fade into a kind of fringe against the sky but the horizon line is not only hard but tight like a fiddle-string i've always had a nervous fear that the sea line will snap suddenly and it is exactly this mathematical decision in the sea that makes it so romantic a background for fighting and human figures england was called in catholic days the garden of mary the garden is all the more beautiful because it is enclosed in four hard angular walls of sapphire or emerald any mere tuft or twig can curve with a curve that is incalculable any scrap of moss can contain in itself an irregularity that is infinite the sea is the one thing that is really exciting because the sea is the one thing that is flat whether however these conclusions can be accepted by the reader as true they can at least be accepted as typifying the kind of thing which william blake believed to be true he would have felt the sea not as a waste but as a wall nature had no outline but imagination had and it was imagination that was trustworthy this definition explains other things blake was enthusiastically in favor of the french revolution 
yet he enthusiastically hated that school of skeptics which, in the opinion of many, made the revolution possible. He did not mind Marat, but he detested Voltaire. The reason is obvious in the light of his views on nature and imagination. The Republican idealists he liked because they were idealists, because their abstract doctrines about justice and human equality were abstract doctrines. But the school of Voltaire was naturalistic. It loved to remind man of his earthly origin and even of his earthly degradation. The war, which Blake loved, was a war of the invisible against the visible. Valmy and Arcole were part of such a war. It was a war between the visible kings and the invisible republic. But Voltaire's war was exactly the opposite. It was a discrediting of the invisible church by the indecent exhibition of the real church with its fat friars or its foolish old women. Blake had no sympathy with this mere flinging of facts at a great conception. In a really powerful and exact metaphor, he describes the powerlessness of this earthly and fragmentary skeptical attack. Mock on, mock on, Voltaire, Rousseau. Mock on, mock on, tis all in vain. You throw the sand against the wind, and the wind blows it back again. An excellent image for a mere attack by masses of detail. There were some of Blake's intellectual conceptions which I have not professed either to admire or to defend. Some of his views were really what the old medieval world called heresies, and what the modern world, with an equally healthy instinct, but with less scientific clarity, calls fads. In either case, the definition of the fad or heresy is not so very difficult. A fad or heresy is the exaltation of something which, even if true, is secondary or temporary in its nature against those things which are essential and eternal, those things which always prove themselves true in the long run. In short, it is the setting up of the mood against the mind. For instance, it is a mood, a beautiful and lawful mood, to wonder how oysters really feel. But it is a fad, an ugly and unlawful fad, to starve human beings because you will not let them eat oysters. It is a beautiful mood to feel impelled to assassinate Mr. Carnegie, but it is a fad to maintain seriously that any private person has a right to do it. We all have emotional moments in which we should like to be indecent in a drawing-room, but it is faddest to turn all drawing-rooms into places in which one is indecent. We all have at times an almost holy temptation suddenly to scream out very loud, but it is heretical and pedantic really to go on screaming for the remainder of your natural life. If you throw one bomb, you are only a murderer. But if you keep on persistently throwing bombs, you are in awful danger of at last becoming a prig. It has been this trouble that has partly poisoned the people from which William Blake inherited, if not his blood, at least his civilization. The real trouble with Puritanism was not that it was a senseless prejudice, 
nor yet altogether, as would seem superficially obvious, that it was a mere form of devil-worship. It was none of these things in its first and freshest motive. Puritanism was an honourable mood. It was a noble fad. In other words, it was a highly creditable mistake. We have all felt the frame of mind in which one wishes to smash golden croziers and mitres merely because they are golden. We all know how natural it is at certain moments to feel a profound thirst to kick clergymen simply because they are clergymen. But if we seriously ask ourselves whether, in the long run, humanity is not happier with gold in its religion rather than mere drab, then we come to the conclusion that the gold on cross or cope does give more pleasure to most men than it gives pain, for a moment, to us. If we really ask ourselves if religions do not work better with a definite priesthood to do the drudgery of religion, we come to the conclusion that they do work better. Anti-clericalism is a generous and ideal mood. Clericalism is a permanent and practical necessity. To put the matter in an easier and more everyday metaphor, it is natural for any poor Londoner to feel, at times, an abstract aspiration to beat the Lord Mayor of London, but it does not follow that it would really have been a kindness to poor Londoners to abolish the Lord Mayor's show. Now it is in this sense that we may truly say that Blake, upon one side of his mind, was something worse than a maniac. He was a faddist. He did permit aspirations or prejudices, which are accidental or one-sided, to capture and control him at the expense of things really more human and enduring, things which he shared with all the children of men. I do not allude to his supernaturalism, for on that he is in no sense alone, nor even specially eccentric. I do not refer to his love of the gorgeous, the terrible or even the secretive of temples, initiations, and hieroglyphic religion, for that sort of mystery is really quite popular and even democratic. That sort of secrecy is a very open secret. It is usual to hear a man say in modern England that he has too much common sense to believe in ghosts, but common sense is in favor of a belief in ghosts, the common sense of mankind. It is usual to hear a man say that he likes common sense and does not like the mummeries and flummeries of church ritual. But common sense is in favor of mummery and ritualism, the common sense of mankind. The man who attempts to do without symbols is a prophet so austere and isolated as to be dangerously near to a madman. The man who does not believe in ghosts is a solitary fanatic and lonely dreamer among the sons of men. Therefore I do not in any sense count even his craziest visions or wildest symbols among the real fads or eccentricities of Blake. But he had mental attitudes, which were really fads and eccentricities, in this essential sense, that they were not exaggerations of a general human feeling, but definite denials of it. He did not lead humanity but attacked or even obstructed it. Many instances might be given of the kind of thing I mean. There was something of it in Blake's persistent, and even pedantic, 
insistence that war as war is evil. There was something of Tolstoy and Blake, and that means something that is inhuman, as well as something that is heroic. But his allusions to this were occasional, and perhaps even accidental, and better cases could certainly be found. The essential of all the cases is, however, that when he went wrong, it was as an intellectual, and not as a poet. Take, for example, his notion of going naked. Here I think Blake is merely a sort of hard theorist. Here, in spite of his imagination and his laughter, there was even a touch of the prig about him. He was obscene on principle. So, to a great extent, was Walt Whitman. A dictionary is supposed to contain all words, so it has to contain coarse words. Leaves of Grass was planned to praise all things, so it had to praise gross things. There was something of this pedantic perfection in Blake's escapades. As the hygienist insists on wearing Jaeger clothes, he insisted on wearing no clothes. As the ascete must wear sandals, he must wear nothing. He's not really lawless at all. He is bowing to the law of his own outlawed logic. There is nothing at all poetical in this revolt. William Blake was a great and real poet. But in this point he was simply unpoetical. Walt Whitman was a great and real poet. But on this point he was prosaic and priggish. Two extraordinary men are not poets because they tear away the veil from sex. On the contrary, it is because all men are poets that they hang a veil over sex. The plowman does not plow by night because he does not feel specially romantic about plowing. He does love by night because he does feel specially romantic about sex. In this matter Blake was not only unpoetical, but far less poetical than the mass of ordinary men. Decorum is not an over-civilized convention. Decorum is not tame. Decorum is wild, as wild as the wind at night. Mysterious as the moons that rise at midnight in the pines of Var. Modesty is too fierce and elemental a thing for the modern pedants to understand. I had almost said too savage a thing. It has in it the joy of escape and the ancient shyness of freedom. In this matter, Blake and Whitman are merely among the modern pedants. In not admiring sexual reticence, these two great poets simply did not understand one of the greatest poems of humanity. End of section 7